Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hooper, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, story, memoir, essay are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from Caroline Levitt, who's going to share the first pages of her newest novel, Days of Wonder. And this novel is not going to be released until next April. So we're actually getting an early sneak peek of the book here. Good morning, Caroline. Good morning so much. I want to tell everybody that I just got up. I have my coffee. I have my Reptar t-shirt. And I'm so excited to be here. So thank yes. you. We are appropriately <laughs> mess. <laughs> for the morning interview. Uh, so Caroline Levitt is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of 13 novels, including Pictures of You, Is This Tomorrow, Cruel Beautiful World, and the Good Morning America pick uh, With or Without You. Uh, she's also a New York Foundation of the Arts Fellow. She was shortlisted for the Main Readers Prize, and she was a Goldenberg Fiction Prize winner. Also, she was the founder of the Nothing is Canceled virtual <laughs> book tour, which helped a lot of writers during the pandemic when they were having their book tours canceled. That grew, and with author Jenna Blum, they co-founded A Mighty Blaze, and they continue to run The Mighty Blaze, um, promoting independent bookstores, helping authors who lost their tours, and helping readers. So, Caroline, thank you so much for all the help that you've given authors as well. It's You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm I'm one of the lucky few that did not <laughs> release a novel during the pandemic, though I did write a novel about death. It's a forensics novel, and it didn't sell. Why didn't it sell? I don't know. So, <laughs> I'm, hoping, I'm hoping now that we're not in a world of death that I can sell that book. Okay, maybe I just need, need to make it a different book. Okay, here we go. Give us a quick summary of the book so that we have some context for your first pages. Okay, um, Days of Wonder is, I hope, a literary page turner about the reach of love, the difference between guilt and innocence, and the elusiveness of redemption. Uh, the story begins with two 15-year-old kids, Jude and Ellen, Ella, they're wildly in love, but Ella's life um, is just totally overturned when she's accused of trying to murder Jude's father, who's a superior court judge. She's sentenced to 25 years in prison as an adult. When she learns she's pregnant, shortly after being sentenced, she's giving up the child. So she's really early released after six years. She creates a whole new identity because she doesn't want anybody to know she's still a felon. And with only an address, she moves to Ann Arbor, Michigan, determined to get her daughter back. Yet there's this central mystery throughout. Neither Jude nor Ellen can remember the night of the attempted murder. So the question is, what really happened that night and why? Um, I just want to say that the book's being compared to Miranda Cowley Heller's The Paper Palace and Allegra Goodman's Sam. And I was already really lucky and grateful enough to get these blurbs from people like Ann Napolitano, Jamie Ford, Jean Kwok, Julia Glass. And so that's it. And I and I have a I have a cover here. Beautiful cover. <laughs> so if you're watching the video, yeah, you can see that. Um uh yeah, and we're going to have Allegra Goodman on later. Um, in oh, she's wonderful. Her book is so wonderful. Yeah, so I'm excited by that. Though, though her actually, hers will probably 
that episode will probably be released before yours. So okay. it also sounds <laughs> a little bit like, um, or a little bit like Heavenly Creatures, where you have two best friends. And right, they, right. Yeah. Well, it, it actually came about sort of like that, and that a friend of mine um, kept wanting to introduce me to an older friend of hers, and she said, oh, everybody loves her, you'll love her, and I met this woman, you know, through the phone, and I did love her, and we began talking, and we cared about each other, and then six months after I knew her, my friend who introduced us said, my friend said, I can tell you now, she was arrested for murder when she was 15, and she served time in prison and she changed her identity she doesn't want to talk about it and she's this wonderful person and her whole thing was like when are people going to forget me I I you know she totally remade her identity and I kept thinking about that you know it's like when what does redemption look like yeah wow okay that sounds incredible okay let's hear these first pages okay here we go part one chapter one New York May 2018 Ellis stepped out of the prison gate, blinded by the sun and the hard blue of the sky, frantically searching for her mother, Helen. At 22, she still felt so, so young, but certainly not the 16 she had been when she first arrived here. Contained as if in a box, she stumbled forward with her eyes on her feet. She knew if she fell, she wouldn't get up. Clenched in her hand, she now carried a paper bag containing all her belongings, except her old cell phone, which the police said they were keeping indefinitely. The air was buttoned too tightly about her throat. She was knocked off balance. The sky looked so big that for a moment she felt frightened as if it might swallow her. But what scared her more were the TV trucks, the media rushing towards her, their voices like thorns. Ella, 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 they shouted, Miss Levy, Miss Levy, and then Mrs. Levy, the one that was meant for her mother, for Helen, using her old name to tether her to the past. Ella craned her neck and rose on tiptoes, searching past the cameras, the shouts for her mom. Though startled at their sudden appearance, the media frenzy was nothing new. They had roiled up public opinion against her from the start. The New York Times had blared, Queen's teen plots murder of Upper East Side judge. The New York Daily News had been even worse. Queen killer cuties attempted murder. Boyfriend's dad was fed poison tea. Redhead caught red-handed. Back then, after the incident, there wasn't a day when she hadn't been in the news, when there hadn't been TV trucks parked on the street where her mother lived or reporters hounding her mother, shouting at her, picking at Helen's past to find the juiciest morsels, acting as if Helen were to blame, too, because in their view, she'd been a rule breaker herself, a woman with no morals, a single mom who had been banished from her Hasidic community when, as a teen, she had gotten pregnant. The media searched through everything, finding pictures of Ella from Help, her school literary magazine, from the future Teachers of America Club. She had joined to strengthen her resume in order to impress colleges. The papers had published photos from Ella's Facebook, along with the messages she had so carefully crafted, especially those she had scribbled on Jude's page, including the one she later regretted. I'd do anything for you. Ella, a reporter shouted. Ella stared down at the ground. Ella, someone else called. Hey, Red. And that was when Ella saw Helen, 
pushing through the crowd, her spine stiff, dressed in heels and a blue business suit she had sewn and tailored herself, her hair covered by a scarf that obscured her face. I'm here, Helen said. And even though it was a warm spring day, she guided Ella into a raincoat with a hood, pulling it over Ella's face as she led her to the car. Ella pretended to ignore the reporters banging on the roof of the car. How do you feel now, a woman with a microphone shouted. Has justice been served? What will you do now? Are you going to try and find that boy? That boy. Another reporter jammed his body in front of the car, pointing at Helen. How much did you really know? How did you let all this happen? Will you ever make tea again? Helen's mouth twitched. What about a garden? Another reporter shouted. Going to try to grow more foxglove, are you? Helen got in the driver's seat and locked all the doors, ignoring the slap of hands on the windows, the way fingers left prints like evidence. Bunch of vulturous jerks, Helen said to Ella, buckle your seatbelt. Helen did, trying to make herself as small as possible, burrowing down. And then Helen pressed on the gas and jerked the car forward until the reporters got out of the way, but their shouts continued to bounce against the window. Are you happy now? A woman called after them. Screw the whole lot of you, Helen muttered. But Helen, Ella shut her eyes and desperately hoped that their insinuations were wrong, that she could indeed find joy. Yeah, <laughs> and that's great. it. Wonderful. So what's interesting too, and I only noticed this when you were reading it out loud, I'm currently now trying to learn Greek and doing very badly at it. But oh. one thing in, in Greek, um, in Cyprus, we kept seeing people call to their dogs, Ella, Ella, Ella. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> and we're like, why are all the dogs on the island named Ella? But the the, the, the word Ella means to come, 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 come. Um, you know so, that that's so great. That's so great. I love that. Here's a side note. Okay. Were these always your first pages? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I knew, I always knew it was going to start like that, where I wanted her coming. I just had this vision of this young, terrified young woman coming out of a woman's prison and the media swarming and her just not understanding anything and just wanting to get out of there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we have, we're in very third, close third person here. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because I felt like, so I interviewed um, someone yesterday and we, uh, Meg Wake Clayton actually, and she starts a, a, a broader context of, it's a woman flying an airplane. And we actually get the setting a little bit more first before we center in on the character. And it's a great way to uh, stabilize the reader and, mm -hmm. and just to introduce the world. However, with you, I think we need to start with the close third and not have the broader context of the world. Right, right. Because we right. need to sympathize with her. The world comes later. Yeah, <laughs> there's a few different worlds there. Yeah, I agree. And I do, I go into different characters' points of view because I like to do that. I like to head hop and see what people are thinking and what they're telling and what they're not telling. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, it's interesting because when we read a character's point of view, um, we really find ourselves sympathizing with that character right away, unless there's something jarring that really knocks right. us out. Um, right. No matter who they are, we feel like we will automatically want to sympathize with that person. Right. Um, so it's just an interesting effect um, of prose. And then you have these wonderful details. The air felt buttoned too tightly around <laughs> her 
wrote. Um, I thought that was wonderful. So we get her coming out and then we move through the headlines and you use those headlines to transition on the next page to back them. Um, and you give us some background there that though there's still a lot of mystery, still a lot of right. questions. Right. And so right. what I'm wondering is, I mean, it's it can be, does the novel move back and forth between the present and the past? Um, and how did you navigate bringing in that past story? Can you talk about that? Yes, it, it was my first ever book that I wrote in a dual timeline. And I thought it was going to kill me. <laughs> One timeline just started out telling it as if it were really happening when Jude and Ella met, how they fell in love, what was going on with their parents and how it impacted them. And it's still a mystery and you're reading it and then you get Jude's, Jude's view of what happened that night. And then you get Ellen's view of what happened that night and you don't find out what really happened until the very end. And interspersed with that is what's going on in the present, where Ella has a new identity. She's trying to find Jude. She's trying to find her daughter. She's grappling with her mother. Her mother's grappling with her own issues. I had to try to map. First, I tried to map it out on two separate sheets of paper. You know, this is happening in the past. This is happening in the present. And it was really difficult to figure out what should happen you know, after they first meet, then so what's logical to happen in the present? Yeah. Um, I had so much trouble that I actually hired a developmental editor to help me figure it out because I couldn't, I just, I couldn't do it. And even after we figured it out, there was still like years and years of figuring out. And then when I sold the book to Algonquin, I had Evan, my, Evan Hanson Bundy, my wonderful editor, also mapped it out and helped me do that. But it was it was just such a delicate balancing act of like, what goes here? And is there enough to keep you going? And I wanted to be very careful that people could not be more interested in either the past or yeah. the present. And that was really tough to do. That was really, right. really tough to do. So you actually, you restructured it with your editor after you mm -hmm. worked it out the first time. Was there a lot yeah. of shifting with the editor then, or? There was a lot of, there were a lot of changes because first of all, there was the balance and then there was also the pacing. You want the narrative line to like keep moving, moving forward. And if it was lagging in the past then it was gonna lag in the present. And the past had some reveals which wouldn't make sense in the past, but they made sense in the future, in the present. And it was such a balancing act. I mean, it was really, really fun, but it was the hardest book I ever had to write because of that. Yeah, yeah. And um, and you're also using different points of views. That's right. Yeah, different points of view also. And it was Jude's points of view, Ella's points of view. Helen's, Helen is a really big figure. We got her point of view. Um, and I think that's it. I think that's yeah. it. And just the three major point of views. But doing different points of views and two timelines is, is yeah. a lot to hear. That's yeah. a lot. That's a lot. Um, and so I've worked with a lot of writers doing this. I've written these, this sort of, um, text as well. Um, did you just write work on one timeline at a time and then put them together or did you as you're writing did you constantly go back and forth how did you go about that that was really hard i mean i did have it sort of mapped out 
but I just tried to write it all the way through going from the present to the past and back to the present because I needed to see how it was going to flow. Yeah. I spent a lot of time reading it out loud, which was actually really helpful because I didn't want it to be such a jar that people would think, oh, no, we're going into the past. I want to find like what's happening with Ella in the present. Um, there was a lot of moving things around constantly, constantly, constantly to get it right. And but reading it aloud is also so important because oh yeah. yeah you have to do that you have to do that I always thought that was a stupid thing to do until I started to do it and I realized well it's like telling a story to someone and you realize as you're listening to yourself speaking this isn't working or oh this is working I should do more of this right and I think it's important too now when you I, I normally advocate, but this is just my process, and I, I tell people, you know, do what works for you. But for this sort of thing, I normally advocate, you know, using um, cards or something physical for each scene so that you can actually move them like puzzle pieces so that it, it actually remains very, very loose. Because I think that's the important thing of keeping <laughs> the, the cards. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. So, so you do that on your wall, on your, how did you go about it? It's, I have a zillion post. I could buy the post-it company, different colors for different, um, for different characters, then different colors lined up for different scenes. I lay it out. I don't have any wall space, as you can see. So I lay it out on the floor. I lay it out across the desk. And sometimes I would lay it out on the computer. And it's just a question of sort of re rearranging. I'm very big on structure. I believe that. I know some people feel that. Oh, if you know, if you structure stuff, no surprises, but it's actually not true. There's tons of surprises. It's like, I always tell people, it's like every human being has a skeleton. That's what we all share. And what makes it creative is what's on that skeleton, how much flesh, what color is the flesh? You know, what's the hair like? If there is hair, what's the clothing like? That's where you get really creative. But for me, having that skeleton is everything because then I know okay, I have a story, I have a middle, I have an end, I have a beginning, I have that skeleton, now I can go wild. And okay. these post-its help. And, and again, I just, I mean, I know some writers that use spreadsheets, but that seems too fixed in place for me. No, I don't do that. I yeah, do that. I mean, again, that might work for some writers, but but even as a plotter, even when you're planning things out, you're not planning it out and then sticking to it by road. Oh, no. Yeah, that would kill it. Never, never, never. I have I have what I call a writer's synopsis where I will write out the story with all the beats and all the structural elements and it's changes. I mean, I will like circle and say, okay, I'm going to write the first scene and then I'll write it and I'll realize, oh, I have to change the outline because now the last scene doesn't make any sense. So that original outline will be rewritten about 20 times. Everything yeah. is very fluid um, and subject to change up until the very last moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so in these first pages, um, did you always originally go back like this? on the second page back then after the incident because now you're not going into a full flashback but you right. are you are um interrupting the forward progression just a little bit so i think some authors might do that too much some authors might 
feel nervous about doing that. I know a few authors that say don't do any backstory at all until you've had at least one major incident in the book. Um, how did you navigate that or feel about that? I, I actually had a lot of I had a lot of conversations with other writers, both on Twitter and in person and with people about how do you how do you handle backstory? And the most valuable information I got was from Jean Kwok, who said everything should be on a need to know basis. And I, she said, keep as much away as you can. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And I thought, well, we need to know there was a boy and we need to know, we need to have an idea that she loved this boy. Um, we need to know a few. And I just made a list of the stuff I thought that we needed to know. And then I kept crossing stuff out saying, well, we don't need to know this yet. So I'll save that. But I just wanted enough so that it's kind of, I call it planting seeds so that the author sees it and they think, oh, there's something about the boy here, um, I'm going to read to find out. Or even with Helen, like, oh, she was a woman with no morals. What does that mean? You know, like, I'm going to read to find out. Well, we don't need to know that whole story. We don't want to interrupt the scene where she's, you know, right there, right there. Right. Because you, so you are answering questions, but you're also launching more questions. And so yes. that's why I think it works really well. So yeah. we, just like you said, with, um, with Helen, um, a single mother had been banished from her Hasidic community. And we're like, what? Right. You know, that right. itself means <laughs> whole story, but right. you don't follow that. You just let it sit and, and right. again, launch a question for the reader. And then also um, the papers had published photos from Ella's Facebook, along with messages she had so carefully crafted. We're like, what are right. those messages? Right. Dude, why? And then also you end that paragraph with, including the one she later regretted, I'd do anything for you. And we're just like, right. what? So, <laughs> um, so it's backstory, it's giving us information, but it's actually launching many more questions than. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I like. I mean, those are the kind of stories I like where you're pulled along, but you don't really, but you have to be careful. It's like, if I came up to you this morning and said, oh my God, I was in the ocean and I saw the shark and it, and it bit me, your instinct to say like, oh my God, it, like, it bit you, what happened? But you wouldn't want me to stop and say, oh, and by the way, let me tell you about the first time I ever had a swimming lesson when I was five. Then you'd be like, oh my God, go back to the main story. So you, it's really, it's really what Jim Kwok said. It's a need to know basis. Because we're Plus, wired to love you? surprises. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, aren't you as the teller bleeding to death if you've been bitten by a shark and don't you need to hurry with the story? <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Instead of telling it. Yeah. I think right. I think always thinking that someone is bleeding and you need to get on with it. Right. <laughs> um, um, I don't know if that totally fits with what you're saying. But and so what I also found interesting here is how you very quickly characterize Helen and in some way her relationship with Helen. So we get, um, and that was yeah. when Ella saw Helen pushing through the crowd so that, you know, she, it seems like she knows who she is. She can get things yeah. done. Her spine stiff, dressed in heels in a blue business suit, which puts her into this kind of category of a very put together woman. But she also has sewn and tailored the suit herself, which yeah. is, what we would normally not expect. At, at first yeah. I would have thought, oh, she's bought a beautiful business suit. So that that kind of no. turns our expectations and rounds her out right there just through what she's wearing. I thought it was very well done. 
And yeah, that, that took up, that was like 18th draft, I think, right. or I put that in. But yeah, those are all the things that once you have the whole novel written, you realize things about the characters and then you think, oh yeah, I have to go back. Of course she'd be wearing, when you learn about her later, you know why she's wearing a suit she made herself. Um, but you don't, you don't need to know it right at that point. You just need enough to be interested. Right, exactly. And it's interesting how Helen greets Ella, because I'm assuming they haven't seen each other for a little while. Is that true? Or well, Helen came to the prison. Helen came to the prison to visit every week. Okay. But they have they have a really interesting and strange relationship for a variety of reasons. But again, it was Jean Kwok. I thought you don't need to know that now. Right. You, just, you know, you just need to know that her mother's the one who came to get her. Yes. And but what I think, again, is interesting is that she's not fully acting like a mother. Um, right. She, That's she's known right. As, she's I'm known so as glad Helen. you said that. Yeah. <laughs> she's known as Helen and not her mother. So we we right. there's a distance distancing effect there um she does guide ella into a raincoat and with the hood and she puts the hood over ella's face so she's being protective of her but she's not hugging her she's not saying right. honey how are you doing you're out <laughs> you can do this this is great there's no right. physical warmth here um instead instead they get in the car and she says bunch of vulturous jerks Buckle your seatbelt, please. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie's like, buckle up. We're in for bumpy ride. Yeah, she's Helen is a really interesting character who's actually based on my own mom who passed away a few years ago. Uh, she was meant to be a combination of almost, she actually is very loving, but in a suffocating sort of way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. And really gratifying to me that you picked up on those details because that's what I wanted. That's what I yeah. wanted. I mean, she, Helen is the sort of person it seems like that you want in this situation because she's going to get things done and she she knows what needs to happen. She knows that she needs to bring that raincoat in order to cover. Right. Um, and so you can, you can trust her like that, but she's not going to, possibly not going to be the person that you can sob on the shoulder or maybe at least not in this period. not yet <laughs> not yet um because helen has gone through plenty herself yes um, she has but you don't and you won't find that out until three quarters of the way through the novel which yeah. again like need to know basis right right <laughs> so i just love i think it's a great lesson of letting things sit um, mm -hmm. as you give us details and not feeling like you need to fill it in right away and, and allowing those things to become mysteries and driving us further into the book. I talk about something that's like, I name it the workshop disease. Sometimes when you workshop pages like this, they'll be like, well, I don't understand what happened to Helen. Oh, right. Right, right. What <laughs> happened to that? And so writers will instantly like, oh, I have to answer these questions. No, you, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. Those, that's like questions are good. Yeah. yeah, the questions are good. It'll pull the reader along. Yeah. All right. 
Carolyn, I'm going to have to let you go and get these folks back to the writing desk. I'm hoping that this was inspiring for them. I think this is a really interesting discussion. So everyone, you can find our full passages of summer schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelistsubstack.com. By the way, I still hate the title passages of summer, so we can mock and make fun of it as much as possible. I feel like it's like an after school special. So feel free to mock it, uh, but I'm still using it. I'm going with it. Uh, so you can subscribe to that Substack page for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. And you can find all the episodes on our on your favorite podcast platforms. Please follow, rate, and review our podcast on those platforms so that we can find other listeners. It makes us look very popular um, and then other <laughs> people find it too. So, um, all right, Caroline, one last question. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? Okay, in your first pages, think of it as your first chapter is actually a microcosm of your whole novel in that it's asking a question that the last pages will answer. And I wanted my first pages to add to figure out what are these relationships and what happened that night? Like, what and what does that mean about what happened that night? Work really hard on them because that's the thing that once you have a first a first chapter or first pages that you think are pretty good, when you're in the middle of the novel and you're thinking, oh, this is terrible, I should just go to dental school, you can't because you have those great first pages. And also, I just want to say, never give up, persist. Just persist, persist, persist. And also remember that just about every author I know feels that their first pages are terrible, even when they're brilliant. So just don't listen to that voice. Just don't listen to that voice and you'll be fine. And if you do think your first pages are terrible, if those aren't the pages that you can go back to to renew your faith in your book, there's there's something. There's something. You're right. (laughs) That you can revisit and be like, okay. I'm not complete shit, you know. <laughs> you know what? You're not. Um, I I always tell like my writing students that when writers come in and they say, "This is the best thing I've ever written. It's so great." I always think, "Hmm, they didn't go deep enough." And when a writer comes to me privately, usually, and maybe they're crying, they're saying, "I'm just." I'm ill-equipped to do this. I'm not a good writer. Then I know, oh my God, what they're writing is going to be really great because they're going deep. They're risking. They're afraid of what they're putting on the page. And 99.9999% of the time, it is. It is. So you have to learn to love that feeling of insecurity and anxiety. It's meant to be that. That is Perfect. Let's end on that. I think that's going to be wonderful for people here. All right, Caroline, thank you so much. And everyone else, get to your writing desk and get some bad writing done, whatever happens. Thank you so much. And thank everybody for listening. And please pre-order my book. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. And thank you so much. I love this show. I love this show. It was worth getting up early for it.